Uh, Psalm 36, starting in verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots to trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen, they are thrust down, unable to rise. This is the word of the Lord. In that particular psalm this morning, um, right at the beginning, it says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's not the only place that the Bible uses that term. If you look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 18, Paul carries it over into his treatise in Romans. And there he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's no coincidence that Paul writes the same words that come out of the Psalms. In fact, I think it's because What Paul writes in Romans is greatly influenced by Psalm 36, particularly the first few chapters of Romans, as he writes there. Paul was converted on the Damascus Road. He had an incredible experience as he was persecuting churches, and the Lord Jesus appeared to him and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And there's no doubt that that was a life-changing experience for Paul. It turned the direction of his life, and uh, he would suffer greatly from that turn. He would, he would be persecuted himself to a large degree as he sought to share Christ and to talk about that experience and to tell others about the opportunity of that experience of embracing Christ. And I'm sure that experience strengthened him as he face those persecutions. I'm sure he remembered what happened there on the Damascus Road. But I don't think it's the only thing that strengthened Paul. I think the thing probably that strengthened him more was here was a man who, as he was persecuting the church of God, was very acquainted with the Scripture, the Old Testament. He knew it. The Bible says he was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was the greatest of all Pharisees, the greatest of all religious leaders in the Old Testament. He knew the Scriptures. He knew the Scriptures well. In fact, for us as Christians today, many times Orthodox Jewish people put us to shame at how well they know the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures. And Paul would have been that way for you probably and for me. He would have talked circles around us regarding the Old Testament as a Pharisee, of a Pharisee among Pharisees. But until that experience on the Damascus Road, he didn't see. It was on that particular 
journey where God opened his eyes to see something. And though that experience certainly strengthened him as he went along and faced great persecutions, he suffered greatly for the name of Christ. What I think strengthened him more was the explosiveness of how the Old Testament came alive to him. How those scriptures that he had known from infancy, really, as he grew up, just one after the other, after the other, after the other, all of a sudden he began to see the connections between what was prophesied and what was told in the Old Testament and the pictures that were given in the Old Testament and how Christ was the fulfillment of that. I'm convinced that it is that which strengthened Paul to come against the persecutions and the things that he faced as he went forward after that Damascus Road experience. He saw them, and and all of those connections got made. And I would say the same for you. Um, The thing that will strengthen you, the thing that strengthens me the most, is when I see the Bible as one story, when I see the connections of the Old Testament and Christ, and how he is the fulfillment of the pictures that were given in the Old Testament. He is the ultimate fulfillment of all of those things that were told in the Old Testament. When you start to see that, it does something to your faith. Young person, I say that to you. The Bible comes alive when you begin to see those connections. If you've just been reading the New Testament, ignoring the Old Testament, you need them both. And when you get them both together, it puts a foundation underneath you that is incredible. And that's what Paul did. In Psalm 36.1, as we've already said, was that verse, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And it's what caused him to write Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3 up to the point at least until he uses that text again. But I want to read to you Romans chapter 1. I want to read a portion of it because what we're going to do is see how that particular text parallels as we go back then ultimately to look at the text in Psalm 36, how, how it was influenced by that psalm, how that psalm is all over what we're going to read in Romans chapter 1. So just listen to the scriptures for a moment. Listen to Romans. You can turn there if you have your Bibles, but if you don't have your Bibles, listen to what Paul writes. Listen to the progression that happens when there is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19 goes on after that, after that statement in Romans that Paul makes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Then he writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although, excuse me, I'm reading the wrong text. I want to go back to Romans chapter 1. I jumped ahead. Romans chapter 1 is where I want to read. I want to begin reading at verse 18 of 1. I apologize. This is what I want you to hear. The other will come later. 118. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth? The truth of God. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now again, all of this, the reason I got in the wrong text, all of this is summed up in there was no fear of God before their eyes. But before he gets to that conclusion, he shows the progression of what happens when there is no fear before their eyes. He goes on to write this, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their heir. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to have done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, Faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval of those who practice them. So here in Romans chapter 1, we get the progression of what happens when there is no fear of God before their eyes. It, It goes from bad to worse as it goes along. You heard it. Now what I want us to do is to go back to Psalm 36 and see how it came out of there for Paul, how Romans 1 was influenced what he wrote because of the connections that were made as he began to see how the Old Testament was a picture of more, was a picture of of all that Christ came to do and fulfilled. And those were greatly influential in Paul's life. So in Psalm 36, if you turn there, I want to look at it. I want to look beginning at verse 1 where it says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. What does that mean? What does it mean that there's no fear of God before their eyes? I think it means that there's no reverence of God. And what it means to have no reverence of God is that you do not take God into account. He doesn't factor into the equation of life. And when you do not factor God into the equation of life, what you do is take what ought to be at the center of life and you replace it with man. So when it says there's no fear of God before their eyes, what that leads to is taking God out of his proper central place in the universe and inserting man there. So the idea that there is no fear of God leaves a void and a vacuum in which man then usurps what ought to be God's and he sets at the center. 
and everything revolves around him and reasoning revolves around him and it goes from bad to worse. Verse 2 talks about how that progression begins to happen. In verse 2 it says, For he flatters himself in his own eyes. He flatters himself in his own eyes. As man takes the position that God ought to have, he begins to flatter himself. He begins to become self-deceived, if you will. Because he's the reference point and it all revolves around him. And therefore deception begins to set in to us. And our thinking begins to get skewed. And one of the ways that our thinking begins to get skewed is that sin gets to be minimized, becomes minimized in our eyes. It says, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. He begins to minimize sin. He loses the reference point, if you will, again, because God has been taken out of the center. He loses the reference point of what is good and what is bad. And no longer is God the one who determines what is good and bad, but he begins to determine what is good and bad. And the sinfulness of his heart leads him to deny sin and minimize sin and talk little about sin. And not only does he not recognize it, but he cannot hate it as he should. It it says in that text that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated the the end result of God being at the center and having him properly at the center is we have a growing hatred of sin. When, when our eyes get opened to the fact that God needs to be there and that we've usurped his authority and we've taken that position and when God opens our eyes to see that, one of the things that begins to happen is we begin to hate our sin. We begin to become aware of our sin. And and the more that we put God at the center, the more that we see our sin and see our hearts. But when we take him away from the center, when there's no fear of him, we begin to flatter ourselves and we begin to deny our sin. But the progression goes on. It says, for he flatters himself in his own eyes That is, iniquity cannot be found out. And then it goes on in verse 3. It says, The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and to do good. There's a progression that begins to happen. As God gets taken out, we begin to have ourselves deceived so that we don't acknowledge our sin and hate our sin. Then all of a sudden we start to to go farther. We, We begin to have wisdom that is really not wisdom. We think it's wisdom. When we put ourselves at the center, we think it's wisdom. We think our reasoning leads us to logical kinds of conclusions, but they're wrong conclusions because there's no mooring. There's no beginning place. It doesn't begin with God. It begins with us. And so it becomes a self-oriented, self-centered, self-motivated world that we begin to live in. And we begin to think we're wise, but we're not. And it goes on to say that not only do we, do we cease to act wisely when we think we are, but we cease to do good because we don't know what good is anymore. Good is what is best for me. Good is what feels best for my circumstance because I'm at the center. 
And so we begin that whole idea of self-deception. How does it affect me? And when you start to ask the question of how does it affect me first, it turns that selfishness to become an ugly kind of thing. It's not always all overnight. It happens so gradually sometimes that we convince ourselves that what's really happening is we're becoming wiser when all the time we're getting more and more self-deceived and unable to do good. It goes on again farther and it says not only are we not doing good when we think we're doing good, that's the inference of that, but it says he plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. We begin to plot evil. Now, certainly there are greater degrees to that than others of people who don't have God at the center and sometimes it's a sophisticated kind of plotting of evil. It's all the time guised in the idea that I'm being wise. I'm being rational. I'm being realistic. But again, underneath all of that is driven by a self-centeredness that always turns it back to us. To us. And we begin to plot evil. The Bible says we begin to plot it. We begin to plan it. We begin to work it out. We don't see it as evil. That's part of the problem. We don't see it as evil many times. We see it as good, but we're not able to do good. And you see how that twisted progression begins to happen. And then finally what happens is, ultimately we start calling evil good. We call evil good in our self-deception. We call evil good. For one who has put God at the center, sometimes we look on to that and we think, has our world gone mad? Has our world gone mad in some of the places that it goes as it puts itself at the center? Certainly the people who do that don't think they've gone mad. They think they're acting wisely. They think they're acting rationally. Rationalism has taken over. But sometimes you think, and you ask yourself the question, how in the world, how did we get here? How did we get here? How is this not seen as foolishness? How is this not seen as evil? How can people call evil good? How? It's really not that difficult. It's when we take God out of the center. That's what will ultimately happen and what ultimately does happen when God gets removed from his proper place. This morning, as I was in the prayer time, I said to you, it's, it's, it's how it happens. You, you look into the heavens and you think, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. Why would... Why all this wasted space on just this puny little earth? What's the problem with that reasoning? We've subtly let ourselves be the center. It's about us. Instead of realizing it's about God. And when you realize it's about God, it changes everything. It just shows us who God is. The magnificence of God. But the Bible says... Men neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him when what was clearly seen had been made by him. You see, that's 
what happens? That's what sin does. It takes God out of his proper place. It takes reverence from him away. And it flatters ourselves by putting ourselves on the throne and in the center. Now, the text doesn't end there. It's interesting, this text. That, that's kind of the progression. That's where I think Paul got his influence of Romans chapter 1 as he wrote it, as we read it this morning. But then in, in the Psalms, he turns and he, he begins to talk about God. It's interesting. Look at what it says in verse 5. After all of that, the psalmist turns and he says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Can you take a sidelight here and still stay where I'm at? I'm, I'm, this is a, a little bit of a rabbit trail, so I'm acknowledging this is a rabbit trail, but I, it was helpful as I was working through this this morning. Or, excuse me, not this morning, this week. The faithfulness. One of the things a commentator said is, you don't see, when you look into the heavens, you don't see God's faithfulness. I mean, it doesn't speak forth faithfulness. Faithfulness only comes in that greater revelation of his word. In other words, as his word comes to us and he is true to his word, faithful to his word, faithfulness is seen. So you don't necessarily look into the heavens and say God is faithful. But you look into his revelation, his word, and God is faithful. But the, the psalmist certainly had looked into his word and he knew God is faithful. Your, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. Here he, he talks about God being taken out of the center and what the logical conclusions of that is. Then he turns and talks about God, which only amplifies the evil. Basically what happens here is the evil is amplified. Romans chapter 1, what can be known about God can be clearly seen in what he has made. Yet man neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. Again, it can be clearly seen. This is what God is like, and yet man rejects it, and it only heaps more guilt upon man because God is like this. That man has spurned him and spurned this God from being in the center. And then he goes on, and he writes, How precious is your steadfast love, O God, the children of mankind. Take refuge in the shadow of your wings. What's he doing then? How precious is your steadfast love, O God? The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. What he's doing there is he basically is telling the difference between a man who puts himself at the center and removes God out and a man who puts God at the center. The difference is what? The difference is The man who puts God at the center has taken refuge in the shadow of your wings. Now, go back to Romans chapter 3 with me. Let's read another text, though the time it needs to be read is now, not not when I began. Look at the progression here. In Romans chapter 10, you see, again, I'm trying to show you the influence of Psalm 36 on Romans. 
Here again we see another influence. It says there's no fear of God before their eyes. I'm not going to read it all. I read about the law. But now go to verse 21. Go to verse 21. It doesn't end there. The, the wonderful good news of the gospel is that it does not have to end with us ripping God out of the center. We're guilty. We're incredibly guilty, and all of us are guilty of doing that at one time in our lives. All of us. That's what sin does. It puts us at the center. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. We're going to read it here in Romans chapter 3. All of us have done that. All of us. All of us. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. It doesn't have to be the end of the story. We don't have to have that progression that it talks about in Psalm 36 and Romans chapter 1. We don't have to have that because it says in verse 21, but now, but now. What is the but now and all that's following? It's a picture of what it means in Psalm 36 to take refuge in God. The psalmist knew that the place to go was to take refuge in God in all that he is, in his faithfulness, his steadfast love, in his justice, and all of those things. But he didn't understand it all fleshed out. He didn't understand the full picture of that. And you see, that's part of what exploded to Paul. Things and texts like that. He he knew texts that say we take refuge in God. But all of a sudden, as as God meets him, Christ meets him on the Damascus Road, he starts to see the connections of Christ to all of that. And taking refuge just explodes for him. And here's how it explodes. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have have failed at one time not to glorify him or give thanks to him. That's what had fallen from his glory. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here it says, this was to show God's righteousness. The psalmist had declared God's righteousness. He said God is righteous. But here we see how he upholds his righteousness. And the way he upholds his righteousness and forgives us and allows us to get under the shelter of his wings and not violate his justice that sin needs to be punished is Christ. So he becomes, the, he becomes just, righteous, and the justifier. He can, he can forgive our sin and still be righteous. All of that explodes for Paul. He begins to write it out. He begins to, to share it. It's what it means to take refuge and to take refuge means to, 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 to put God back at the center, to have a fear of him and to run to him, to be our protector, 
and to be our forgiver, be our sin bearer. Old Testament people had a sense of that, but they had no idea how it was going to work its way out. They had no idea of how God would uphold his righteousness and do that. That didn't have the full picture. And now we do. And so you see Paul's progression and influence of, of Psalm 36 in the book of Romans. And young people again and older people as well, seeing those connections, I hope, strengthens your faith this morning. That, that all of this book is a story about Christ. All of the Old Testament is pointing us toward the New Testament, to things like this and greater, more, more revealed truth to us where God can be faithful in it. There is a progression of sin in the lives of those who take God out of the center, who don't take refuge in him. The difference between one who does and doesn't is refuge in God. Opening our eyes to see that we need to take refuge in him. We need to run to him. That's what it means to take refuge. Let him be our protector. Let him factor into our lives. Let him be at the center of our lives and all that God is for us in Christ. Now, I want to close this morning a minute here. I want to talk about myself. Worship team's going to come and lead us just a moment in prayer. But I talk to you about the progression that happens of taking God out of the center and how it leads us to not acknowledge our sin, how it leads us to a wisdom that we think is wise and good and is really evil. And we get to the point of where we call good evil and really believe that's the wise thing to do. That we're acting rationally and wisely. And all the time there is a remnant around that looking on that and saying, how could we get there? I'm grateful this morning, folks. I can be part of that remnant and I hope you are too. Not self-righteously part of that remnant. Not somehow to pat ourselves on the back that we're part of that remnant. That can look on to that progression and look on how it affects the culture and say, how did we get here? This is ludicrous. This is crazy. Things that people are calling good that is evil. How do we get there? I'm grateful this morning that I hope I can humbly and repentantly see that. Because, folks, had had God not intercepted my life when I was 18 years old, had he not opened my eyes to see that I needed to take refuge in Christ, I'd be right there. And one of the things that happens in that progression is a militancy rises up in that. In that progression of going from taking God out of the center and, and not acknowledging your sin and beginning to call good, um, evil good, there, there gets to be a militancy in that that drives it. Because man's at the center. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'll be a sovereign unto myself, thank you. I don't need a sovereign over me. I, in my own wisdom, can do it. I say to you this morning, I would be the most militant of the militant had God not intercepted me. You know why I know that? It's because even after he intercepted me, even after I've taken refuge in Christ, 
I still like to be at the center. I still have to fight the temptation to want to be at the center. And so do you, if, if you're there. In us is still that seed. In us is still that sin that, that if we give way to it, wants that. And so we have to come against it. But if there's nothing coming against it, folks, if, if at 18 years old there didn't come a, a resource into my life in the presence of the Holy Spirit to fight against that, I say to you this morning, I would be the mil- most militant of the militant. So when I run into people who are militant about calling good evil, my heart breaks because I would be right there. I would be right there. And what we need to say to them, gently and carefully and lovingly and, and relationally, is God's been taken out of the center. God's been taken out of the center. And how God showed me that in my life. And I hope the same for you. And I pray the same for you. That somehow open your eyes to see that what has gotten you there is pride. I'll be a sovereign unto myself. I don't need anybody else to tell me anything. I hope this morning that you're grateful if you are troubled when evil gets called good. But I pray it's a, it's, a, it's a repentant troubled, knowing that but for the grace of God there you would go too and that you'll build relationships with people who are caught in that and attempt to help them to see. Pray that God would help them to see. Pray that God would show them that the answer and the remedy is to take refuge in him. Worship team's going to lead us this morning. That last song that we sang in our offering time, I think, lends itself well to what we're talking about. We've, we've, we've spurned your glory, Lord. We all spurned your glory fully at one time. And the temptation's still there. The seed still resides in us to, to want to be the center. The difference is that God won't let us. If you're his child today, he won't let you do that freely and unreined. He will come against it. You will wrestle with that and you'll fight against it. That's what God does for his people. Let's stand and sing together. not what we should be we haven't sought what we should seek we've seen your glory Lord but looked away our hearts are bent our eyes are dim our finest works are stained with sin and emptiness has shadowed all our ways Jesus Christ, 
shine into the night, drive our dark away, till your glory fills our eyes. Jesus Christ, shine into our night, bind us to your cross, where we find life. often go astray we chase the world forget your grace but you have never failed to bring us back reveal the depths of what you've done the death you died the victory won you made a way for us Jesus Christ, shine into our night, drive our dark away, till your glory fills our eyes. Jesus Christ, shine into our night, bind us to your cross, where we find love. Father, I remember those years when I was without you, where my eyes were blinded. And I can just imagine if I'd have had 40 more years to practice that, what I would be like today. How, how entrenched I would be in militant kinds of ways thinking I was wise all the time. God, I'm grateful that you intercepted me there and showed me the error of my ways, the error of putting myself at the center and having no fear of God before my eyes. Lord, I just pray that that you'll help all of us to, if in fact that has happened to them, to rejoice that you've opened our eyes that, that we haven't had more years to practice that Lord we all we all know the seeds of that are still there but just the seeds not the full grown effect and Lord I pray that that, that will cause us to humbly look at our world who today wants to call evil good wants to believe that's the wise thing and that we would compassionately move toward it and tell our story tell the story of the gospel and tell people that they can find refuge in Christ and there's a righteousness now that is available to them for their spurning of your glory We pray, Father, you'll open their eyes to see it's the only answer to anything changing is that people see a different way, 
see that you're the one who needs to be at the center and not us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go on God's peace.